I, I can hear myself. If you didn't do your homework, that's okay. I just I know I appreciate it when I know a little bit ahead of time what we're studying, so I can have the chance to read it through. That is really loud, Josh. It sounds good. Okay, that's fine because I might get louder. Uh, this book, um, I I decided to read it because I'm like, man, I haven't read Obadiah in a lo- long time, long time. I was thinking back, it's like, maybe my years at Emmaus Bible College, when I read the whole Bible through and through, I'm like, I, it's been a long time. So let me go back and read through it again. And I, I got stuck in it for well over a month. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I hope that some of the thoughts that, uh, that come across here uh, will be uh, good for you, because they've been great for me, challenging. Um, so without further ado, I want to read through the book. All right, all 21 verses of it. All right. The vision of Obadiah, verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes?
house of Jacob shall possess the possessor. The house of Jacob shall be a father, and the house of Jacob a wife, and the house of Esau shall be sons. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess the mountains. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captains of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. And Sarah, the captives of Jerusalem, who are in the Sarah, shall possess the cities of the south. The, then Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's open a word of prayer. Oh Lord our God, we give you thanks for your word, for it is powerful. It's like a double-edged sword. Lord, we give you thanks uh, that you provided it to us so we can learn about you, to learn about your Son, and how to be saved. I pray that as we look into it now, that you would be honored and glorified, that you would illuminate the Scriptures to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give me your words, and that nothing would be said in error. Lord, we commit this time to your hands. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Just want to make a quick observation. Verse 1. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. And then at the end, how does it wrap up? And the kingdom will be the Lord's. We see here that the Lord is opening up. I am the Sovereign God. I am the Almighty Being. I will have my way. I, my will will be accomplished. Who's going to stop me? No one. And in the end result, my kingdom will live. My kingdom will be established and I will rule. That is the beginning and that is the end. Now, what we see in the middle here is, man, this, this is a pretty harsh book. Um, it's one of the harshest sections of Scripture that is ever pronounced on a nation. Uh, God's judgment... It's pretty intense here. Um, now, it's also the shortest book in the Old Testament. We know very little about the author. His name's Obadiah. That's about as much as I know about him. Um, he was a prophet. The Lord used him uh, to speak this message to the people in Edom. Uh, it was, well, it, it's actually an overview of a giant history. And this history that we see in here, goes back centuries. So in order to understand this book, we need to back up. So let's go back through the beginning of time. All right. Now, if you went to Amaze Bible College, then this is for you. If not, I'm going to do a walk through the Old Testament, just a little piece of it. So in the beginning, we have the creation of the world. God speaks forth and makes stuff come out of nothing. And then in chapter 3, you have the fall of man. Then you have the flood of Noah. All right. And it wipes everybody out. Then you have the Tower of Babel. The greatness of mankind. The epitome of man's pride and excellence. And God does what? Scatters all the people. Time goes by and a man pops up on the scene. God selects a man. His name is Abram. And God says, Abram, I will bless you. I will make a great nation out of you. All the nations that bless you, I will bless. All the nations that curse you, I will curse. And changes his name to Abraham. Abraham has two sets of eyes. Two in his head and two in his house. 
He has Isaac and he has Ishmael. Ishmael, the son that God did not promise. Isaac, the son that God had promised. Isaac then has two sons. Twins. Two nations are born the same day. And God says that the younger will rule over the older. The older will serve the younger. And the promises that God made to Abraham, how he will love and have a chosen people that will be his forever, flow through Jacob. Now, you want to talk about some family dynamics that don't... Here's what not to do in your home, okay? Uh, Jacob's home had some issues, all right? Jacob loved his firstborn son, Esau. Esau was a man's man, all right? Esau lived in the woods. He was a hunter. He was a gatherer, all right? He was a burly man. Jacob, well, he was a ladies' man. He, he was a mama's boy. Jacob lived at home with mama. Mama loved him. Mama loved him more than Esau. Jacob loved Esau more than Isaac, uh, more than Jacob. And there was definitely a division in the home of who liked who. That's not healthy, guys. Do not be like that family. Do not have favorites among your children. Because what happens is not a pretty thing. All right? Having favorites in your home breeds bitterness. It breeds competition. It's a very unhealthy dynamic. And the beginning of that unhealthy dynamic relationships in those homes lasted for centuries. And they still last today. We have two nations that hate each other because of this family issue. Issues in our homes can last for generations. Parents, it's a challenge for us that we raise our children in such a way that the morals and the values and the love that we instill in our children hopefully leave a positive effect on our children for generations to come. You know that some of you may have grown up in homes where the choices of your grandparents affect you still today. All right? You have the opportunity to change that now. I, I was blessed that my great-great-great-grandfather got saved. And that has gone down from generation to generation down down to me. And I have been blessed because of that. I pray that the morals and the love and the things that you instill in your family would be a positive blessing for your family for generations to come. Not like this one here. Because the two brothers hated each other. Esau hated Jacob. Pretty much because, well, he sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of soup. All right, he was tricked. He was conned. Um, and he was hungry and starving, and he went for it. Um, and, and it's a very difficult relationship. And that led to the two families departing ways, because Big Brother wanted to kill his little brother. Uh, and understandably so, I, I get that from a human point of view. I, I get that. Um, but it's still not right. So those two brothers split ways, older brother hating younger brother. The older brother Jacob, sorry, the younger brother Jacob turned into the people of Israel, became the Jewish nation. Esau, having children and children and children, also grew into a great nation, the nation called the Edomites. If you do any, if you know anything about Old Testament scripture, if you read through it, you know the Edomites and the Israel nation were always at war over their boundaries, over their borders, and in fact the Amalekites 
were a part of the Edomite nation. What do we read when the Israelites are walking through the wilderness? The Amalekites are always attacking the sick, always attacking the weak. They never destroyed them fully because they are always coming back. A picture of the sin nature. You can't fully defeat the sin nature until God has perfected you in your heaven. It's always there raging against your soul, waging war against your body and your desires. All because of this dynamic that happened in their home. Edomites were people who, well, if you read in Scripture, Josh, yeah, I, this thing doesn't work, does it? Whoop. There were people who lived in rocks and mountains. Uh, we read right here uh, in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes on the heights and who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars. All right. The Edomites were a people who lived literally in mountains that they carved out to make homes. Next slide, Josh. All right. Petra, Mount Seir, these great nation, uh, these great um, uh, homes, virtually indestructible, very fortified, very strong. They were people who were um, very proud of who they were, and that no one could really attack them. Because they were very well established. You couldn't burn their house down. It, it don't burn. You, you couldn't blow it up back then because there wasn't any warfare like that. So they were very well established, very hard to attack. Um, if you, next slide Josh, where they're located, alright, you see you have the, uh, laser pointer. Alright, we got the nation of Israel up here, and Egypt over here, right? When the Israelites were in Egypt, God set them free. They wandered the desert all around here for 40 years. And God said, hey, go to the promised land. I'm going to walk you there. On their final trip, they had to go through Edom. They get up to here, go across. Then they crossed over here to get to Jericho, right? They had to go through the land of Edom. We already know that the two of those have conflict with each other. When they were traveling through the wilderness and they had to pass through the land, what did God say to the Israelites before they passed through the land of Edom? Do not meddle do not mess with, do not pick a fight, do not bother them, do not mess with the Edomites as you pass through the land. In fact, actually, you should go ask permission first. Um, and it says in Deuteronomy chapter 2 that God gave the Edomites, Mount Seir, which is over here, a possession to them. God gave a land to the Israelites. God also set out a portion of land for the Edomites that was theirs. And he says to the Israelites, don't mess with that. That, that's their land. I gave it to them. Don't think that you're going to go in there and take them over and take it from them. I, I have given that to them. So just leave them alone. Don't pick a fight. They're your cousins. Just go through quietly and don't, don't do anything where they're there. All right? Now, what has led up to this phase, this story here? Centuries go by. Uh, Israel establishes their home. They conquer their land. Uh, God establishes them. We have King David on the scene, then his sons on the scene. And eventually, the Israelites fall away from the Lord. And God pronounces judgment on them. And God uses the Assyrians to come in and conquer the northern tribe. Then he uses the Babylonians to come in and conquer the northern, uh, southern tribe of Judah. This book is taking place based off of what happens when Babylon comes in and 
takes away, they capture Judah, they capture Jerusalem, and they take captive the people who live there. And what happened was Edom, the Edomites, not liking the Israelites, went, hey, hey, come on, come on, whoop their butts, take them. And in fact, you know what, let's help you. And they literally sat on the sidelines and watched and cheered and hurrayed for Babylon to kick their cousin's butts. And while that was happening, they would go in at night and pillage the land. They would take all the stuff from the leftover Israelites that are left over. And, 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 and we read that. You also go look in Psalm uh, chapter 137. Uh, it says that the Edomites sat on the sides and cheered. And cheered the Babylonians as they came in and defeated them. And in Psalm 37, uh, the Israelites are praying to God that one day, one day God, avenge us for what the Edomites had did to us, have done to us. They cried to the Lord because the Edomites took all their possessions. Everything that was left behind, they took away. Now we read in Obadiah that God is saying, Edom, because of what you did to your brother, because of what you did to Jacob and the day the Babylonians came, I am pronouncing judgment on you. I will eradicate you from the face of this earth one day. The mercy that you did not spare to your cousins, I will not spare to you. The stuff that you stole from them, I will be ten times worse. When a robber comes to your house and steals, they just take some stuff. I'm going to take all of it. I'm going to leave nothing behind. And in fact, I'll wipe every single one of you off the face of this earth. I want to look for a quick second on the contrast. Quick contrast between God's judgment on the Israelites. When they disobeyed God, God judged them, right? They got taken into captivity. The Edomites, what did God say to them? I'm going to wipe you off the face of the planet. There's a little difference there, right? God showed mercy and compassion even in His time of judgment. God promised hope to the Israelites. God promised a Savior to them. He did not promise that to the Edomites. Verse 17, on the mount, sorry, But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire. There's a day coming sons of Esau, that the cousins and brothers that you so hate, I will reestablish them. The promises that I made to Jacob and to his sons, I will establish, I will see through, and they will be a nation of mighty fire. And they will be delivered, and they will be my possession. And there's nothing you can change that, regardless of what you just did to them. Quick overview of the book. And a historical background to it. Wow, time's flying by. I want to take a minute here and I want to look at some of the. We, we see that God is pronouncing judgment, verses 1 through 14. God is pronouncing judgment on the Edomites for what they have done. You did this horrible thing to my people, 
I will not spare my wrath on them. And he's talking directly to the Edomites. But in verse 15, God takes a little side tangent. He says this, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. I'm not just talking right now to you, O sons of Esau. I'm now going to talk for a brief second to the entire world. All nations. What is the day of the Lord? Well, we see in the scriptures, there's many days of the Lord, right? Uh, the prophets speak of the day of the Lord quite often. And many a times they're referring to, alright, Israel, alright, Judah, alright, Jerusalem, you have forsaken me, you have abandoned me, you have treated me as a harlot and gone after other people, other gods, I will pronounce judgment on you. And the Assyrians came in, and the Babylonians came in, and that was God's judgment on them. That was not judgment to the nations. That was not the Lord's day of all nations. There is a day coming, you can read in Revelation, there is a day coming when God will pronounce judgment on all nations. I want to read a few verses. Uh, Josh, nice one. There we go. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and fiery and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. Again, we're not talking to a particular people here, right? We're talking to all peoples right now. I will punish the world for its evil, and their wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Next one, Josh. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who was proud and lofty and against everyone who was lifted up that he may be abased. There will be a day coming where God will make everything right and he will judge sin. He will exterminate sin and anyone who is evil. Did you see a common link? I kind of highlighted it for you to help you out there. Did you see a common link between the people that he's going to focus on? People who have what characteristic? People who have pride. People who have pride. And I think that's kind of the root cause, one of the root effects of why God is going to pronounce judgment on the Edomites. Because when you go back to the Edomite, when you go back to Obadiah, you see in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. O sons of Esau, you think you're awesome? You think you're mighty? You think you're unstoppable? You think I can't get to you? Guess what? I'm going to exterminate you. Your pride has deceived you. And I think that's the root cause of all this problem. Edomites, I, we are better than Israel. We are awesome. We deserve it all. We are the firstborns. We are the rightful heirs of Abraham. Give us what we deserve. Pride in their hearts. And God will not tolerate pride. He hates it. And we just read that when he comes back, the nations that he will focus on are nations that have pride in their heart. That is source of evil. Source of wickedness is pride. 
Do not think that you're too high up that I can't get to you guys. Don't think that those mountains and rocks that you live in are really going to stop me from finding you. <laughs> Next one. Read a few more verses here. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness indeed, my decision to gather all nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For all the earth would be devoured by my fire of my zeal. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus. Jesus Christ will judge the earth. And you know what? Man, I'm kind of grateful. Whew! I'm not one of those people. I'm okay. Man, I'm a Christian. Ain't got no problem pride. I'm good. That, that was just me showing some pride. <laughs> and in a minute, we're going to look at that. Wait a minute. We too might have a problem, just like they did. Now, I am grateful that I have a Savior who when he comes to judge the nations, will not judge me like them. I have a Savior who died for me. And he has only promised good things to me. He has spared me from the judgment to come. He has spared me from the wrath. He has spared me from what I deserve Hell, He has spared me from that. If you do not know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, what we just read is coming for you. You are part of all nations. You are part of the people that God will exterminate because of your sin. If you do know Jesus, phew, that's not coming for you. What's coming for you is wonderful Love for my God. Coming at home where you will reign with Him and glory forever. Joy and peace. <laughs> Live with God forever. No more sorrow, no more crying. Eternal joy forever is coming for you. And it's not because we deserve it. It's because He loves us and what He's done for us at the cross. I want to get back for a second that God's view of pride. I just want to stress, I really want to focus on God's view of pride. Alright? Because we saw that that's, I believe, to be the root cause of what is going to be the end destruction of Edom. Is their pride. Josh, I got more? Next one. Alright. Alright. Where's that? That's on there. All right, let me read a couple over here first. First John two sixteen. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Isaiah chapter thirteen. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Isaiah two. Sorry, guys, I don't have the same screen, so I'm trying to... The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. But the Lord will be exalted in that day. To fear the Lord 
is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. You guys hear, this is God speaking here. What does he hate? I hate pride and arrogance. Evil behavior and perverse speech. God has no place for pride. Will not tolerate it. He hates it. Who is the only person in all of everything that can have pride? God himself. Because he is the almighty supreme being who made everything. He does no wrong. His thoughts are pure. His thoughts are perfect. His actions, his ways, nothing wrong with them. He is righteous in all that he does. Who are we? Little insignificant humans. Deceitful. Lying. There is nothing good in us. Nothing good in us. God has no place for pride anywhere. And we even know that's the root cause of of Satan. What happened with Lucifer when he fell from heaven? He had pride. I will be like the Most High. I will be God. Can Christians have a problem with pride? I believe so. I believe so. I'd like to take a quick look at some ways that I believe Christians can have pride grow in our hearts. I want to identify them. Maybe you can identify some of these in your own heart. And then we'll take a look at where we see some of the examples in Scripture real quick. And then we'll look at a quick solution. Okay? Hopefully, if you're like me, you'll find some ways that pride has creeped into your own heart. And then hopefully, you'll fix it. Now, fear and anxiety. How is that pride? Well, you know what? You're not relying on the supremacy of Christ as the ruler in control of the world. God says he's got this. God said he's got everything in control. He knows your future. He knows everything about you. And you don't want to trust in him? You don't want to depend on him? You're refusing to rest in God's sovereign care? Probably because you can do it better yourself. You don't need him. That's pride. Fear and anxiety in your heart stems from pride. I don't want to trust God. I don't believe he's got it. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. What's the cure for that? Seek first his kingdom, and all these things, and all his righteousness will be added unto you, God says. Listen, don't worry about tomorrow. I got this. All you got to worry about is the mission you have at hand to further my kingdom. You worry about taking care of furthering my kingdom, seeing the gospel spread, showing the love of Christ to other people. I'll take care of everything for you. Don't worry about a darn thing. There's nothing in this life that can attack you, hurt you, kill you outside of God's plan for you if you're in his will. Ain't nothing going to get you. Entitlement. And ungratefulness. God, I earned your blessing. I deserve it. God, I go to church every Sunday. Do I put money in that offering out there? You know, I'm having a hard time right now financially. Time for some kickback. Alright? God, you know, I, I've been faithful to you all these years. I deserve a good life. 
I deserve health. I deserve blessings. I deserve an easy retirement. I worked hard for you so many years, Lord, as leadership in that church. Man, I just want to retire now. I deserve that. I desire safe, uh, safe finances. I desire some success in my job. I desire, sorry, I, I deserve, Lord, sorry, not desire. I deserve good relationships. I deserve love and comfort. I, I deserve these things, God. I'm your, I'm your son. And I worked hard for them. What do you actually deserve? We are totally depraved. We are corrupt. We are a morally corrupt people. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. Everything you have in this life is grace. Is a gift from God that you do not deserve. Do not think that you have earned anything in this life on your own. Every blessing in your life is a gift from God. Give Him thanks for that. Give Him the credit. Give Him the glory. Lord, I'm thankful for my house. I'm thankful for my wood pile in my backyard that I had that keeps my family Lord. That's, yes, I went out and worked for it, but God, you provided for that for me. So thank you. The job that I have, you provided that for me. Thank you. The car that I have, you provided that. Thank you. The children I have, you provided that. Thank you. The clothes that I wear, thank you. Everything. The friends that I have, thank you. There's nothing you can name or think of that God has not given you. That you did on your own. None of it. It's all His sovereign plan, His sovereign will. Give Him credit for it. You're not entitled to anything. Do not be a hypocrite. Do not judge others and elevate yourself. Man, God, I'm here every morning punctual on Sunday. At least I'm not like that people who walk in late every week. That's good. No. Do not do that. Do not, oh man, God, at least I don't have those addictions. I might have these little things over here, but I'm not that bad. Alright? Do not judge others to elevate yourself. That, that's pride. And that is wrong. That is flat out wrong. Do not be like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, where they have a hypocritical spirit. And God judges the Pharisees. Do not have a rebellious attitude. Do not refuse what God has called you to do. Don't be like Adam and Eve. I know, God, you don't want me to do that, but I know better. Ah, I'm going to do it my way. God is calling you to do stuff in your life. He's called you not to do certain things in your life. You know what, God? That sin's not that bad. I'm not really going to hurt anyone else. I'm not even going to really hurt myself doing it. It's okay if I do it. I don't have to listen to you. I know better than you, God. You commit sin willingly, that's you telling God, I know better. That's pride. That is pride. It is wrong. Last one, prayerlessness. I can do life without God. I am independent. I am capable of making my own decisions. I can serve you, God, without even you helping me. Prayerlessness, in my opinion, is the root of all those problems. We sing on Sunday morning, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. 
If there are weeks that go by when I come here and sing that song, I don't think when I sing it, it's bouncing off the ceiling. Because I have gone a whole week without really communicating with God. I, I, okay, we pray for our food, pray for big things. But the little things in life that God desires, have, desires to have communication with us, I don't, I don't need you at work, God. I got this. I've been teaching for 12 years now. I got this. I don't need you. I've been married now for 10 years, God. I got this. I don't need you. Um, there's an individual in our assembly that challenges me every time I talk to her. Because every time we talk, she's sharing how she had to take this scenario to the Lord. No matter how small it might be, I'm glad I had a discussion with God about that. I'm like, you talked to God about that? Really? I would never think about that. Everything that she does, she talks to God about. Because she lives a prayer-filled life. There's no pride there. She's acknowledging her dependence on the Lord. In everything, even the smallest little things, the relationships that they have with the people, the job that she has, everything goes before God. And it has really challenged me lately that do I take even the little things to God or do I just assume that I can do them on my own? Because I think I'm pretty good at what I do. I'm a pretty good teacher. I'm actually one of the best in the school. I got this. I don't need God's help. You know, I'm pretty good with people. I got this. I don't need you, God. You know what? I'm a pretty good teacher. God, I don't even need your help getting ready for Sunday messages. I got this. You know? I can run VBS, God. I, I, I got this. I, I've been doing youth ministry now. Jeez, forever. I got this. I don't need you in planning. That is pride and that is wrong. That is pride and that is wrong. I pray that you take everything before the Lord. No matter how small it is, take it before the Lord. Acknowledge before Him that you need Him. Let Him be a part of the conversation. God, should I do this or should I do this? Don't just be like, I'm going to make a decision. Take it before Him. Even if it's the tiniest little thing, take it before Him. Don't assume you got this. We practice this. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we see God talking to the churches, right? And uh, I read through them over the last couple of weeks to listen to a speaker about them. And, and, and I noticed something interesting about all the, most of the churches. Yeah, they all had unique problems. But when I traced it back to these key things of pride, I believe the churches fall into pride. And that's one of their big problems. Uh, if you, if you, you could turn there if you want to. I'm not going to read them all, just for the sake of time. But I just want to show evidence in Scripture that Christians have problem with pride. And God even condemns it in Scripture. This is not just for Old Testament people. This is not just for people who are walking the world. All right, Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. This is great, God. I know you cannot stand or tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found to be false. Excuse me. You have persevered 
and have endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. That's great stuff. But this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've put me in a back burner. You don't even consult me anymore. You don't care about me anymore. I'm not your most important thing anymore. These are Christians who are working hard to preserving good doctrine in their church. Preserving the truth of Christ in the church. They do not tolerate false teachings. And God commends them for that. But he's condemning them because he says, you're going through life without me as a center. You're going through life without me. You're doing it without me. You've forgotten me. The one who loves you. Pergamum. Yet you remain true to my name. I'll go this read. Here we go. Pergamum. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. And he goes on. And he identifies sin in their life. He identifies sin in the Christian's life. And it's gross immoral sin. They have become a rebellious church. It says, God, we know your word says don't commit sexual immorality. We're going to do it anyways. And then we're going to teach it and we're going to encourage it. Yeah, that's a rebellious attitude. God, we know you're telling us not to do that. We know a better way. We know a better way. We can have your way and our way. Mixed together, it's perfect. We can please our flesh and please you at the same time. No problem, God. We got this. They're not being humble to the word. They're not being humble to the commands of God. Thyatira, same problem as the last church. Sardius, I know the deeds. Next slide, Josh. There you go. I know the deeds. And you have a reputation of being alive. I love this church. You have a reputation as a church of being alive. Because what? You are dead. Awake up. Strengthen what remains. Because what is, the, what is left is about to die. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Now, here's a church that from the outside world's perspective, this is a church that's on fire. This is a vibrant church. They got all the ministries going on. They got the kids' ministries. They got the Sunday school. They got the youth groups. They got the young group studies. They got outreach of serving the community, serving food to the poor. They'd be, they, this, this, this church has got it all. They got the awesome music. They got the fanciest PowerPoints, not mine. All right, they 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 got the whole setup. The, the, man, if you had to judge a church by its cover and by what you see, this is the ten star church. And what does God say about it? I don't care what the world thinks about you guys. You're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but inside is dead. You're trying to walk this life without me. 
You have no faith. And you can't please me if you have no faith. You're doing your vacation Bible school programs without me involved. You're doing your ministries without me involved. You're speaking from the pulpit without me involved. You're doing relationships without me at the center. And all that's fluff if I'm not in it. They're a prayerless church. They're a prayerless church. Laodicea, we know this. You're neither hot nor you're cold. I want to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, that you have acquired wealth, and you do not need a thing. We got, we are, there's nothing in this world that we need, God, because we're filthy rich. We have finances, we have resources. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and wear white clothes so you can cover your shameful nakedness and uh, to save your... Uh, is that up there? Nope. Sorry. <laughs> God is calling His church to come to Him for living water. To come to Him for the bread of life. And say, nope, we got this, God. We have everything we need. We don't even need to pray for resources because we have so much of it. Uh, this church was rich. Filthy rich. And in fact, there was a great fire that came through the, the, through the town. Wiped everything out of the town. Rome said, hey, let's give you some financial support to get back up on your feet as, as a town. The town said, nah, we got this. We don't need your help. We got enough of our own resources. We're, we're filthy rich. God, we don't even need you. We don't need you. There is a, at times a blessing to be broken financially before God. Because there's nowhere else to go but to Him. If you're an individual who is wealthy, and you don't have to be someone that has a million dollars to be wealthy, right? Most of us are wealthy. Compared to most of the world, we are filthy rich. Do not get wrapped up in your wealth. Do not think that you can go through anything in life because you got money to take care of every scenario that pops up. You need God. Allow God to be part of your finances. Say, God, you gave me this money. It's actually yours. Do whatever you want with it. Let it be a blessing to other people. How do you fix pride? Last slide, Josh. What's the cure for pride? And it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Pray. Pray a lot. Pray often. If you find pride in your heart, if you've looked at some of these and go, shoot, I got that problem, come before the Almighty God on your knees and ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just. He will forgive you. He'll make it right. He'll clean you up. He'll make you okay before Him. Say, all right, we're great. Let's, let's move forward now. Let's move past this. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Acknowledge your dependence on Him and acknowledge the blessings that He has given you. Literally, go through your life and just count out how much blessings you have. Start, just start random, Lord, thank you for my home. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my car that I drive. Thank you for my job. Thank you for my friends. Just start listing them all. And at the end of it, you will be so blessed in recognizing that you need God more than you thought you ever did. You'll, be, you'll recognize how much He's done for you outside of just saving you.
do not let pride creep up in your heart. If you walk with the Lord every day in constant prayer, even over the little things, pride will not be able to creep in because you're acknowledging God in everything you do. So I just want to challenge you this week. Don't be like the Edomites who for centuries had a problem with pride. Let's be a people that acknowledge our dependence before the Lord, that we walk with Him continually in prayer, and that we seek first His kingdom because we know that everything else will fall into place. Let's go to prayer. Lord our God, we give you thanks as your almighty God. And we can depend and trust that you got this. You know the future. You know everything about it. We pray that we would acknowledge our sin before you. That we would not try and hide it. We would not try and do this life without you. But that we would recognize our dependence upon you. We pray that in doing so, we would have a great effect for your kingdom here on earth. That by acknowledging that we need you and that we want you to be a part of our every life decision, that the ministries that we're involved in, the relationships that we're involved in, would all grow to be a blessing to those around us, that they would further your kingdom, and that many lives would be changed because of your work through us. Lord, we thank you for your saving grace, for we do not deserve it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Have a great and blessed week, everybody.